Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back to Podside, everyone. Uh, this is, as usual, Carlo. Um, and today, I am... Uh, this is actually a, a bit of a first for Podside. We are going to be discussing a book that is not quite out yet. Um, and uh, with us today is uh, Lincoln Mich- Michel. Michelle, I should say. I'm sorry. Um, how you doing, Lincoln? Good. Doing great. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, hopefully, uh, the the storm is a bit off. <laughs> You're safe uh, from what is it? The tropical storm, soon to be Hurricane Henri. Oh yeah, you know I haven't paid too much attention to that, but it's it's totally fine here in in Brooklyn right now. Well, we'll knock on wood for on. <laughs> I've been through my share of hurricanes. It's not uh, it's it's not that big a deal, but sometimes it can be. Um, but so uh, we're going to be talking about your uh, your book, uh, The Body Scout, uh, which uh, I, I sort of just, I got to admit, I tore through this in, uh, a, I, I, I'm a slow reader, I, I have to admit to you. And um, this sort of moved along at a pace that I was finishing it up within three or four days. Uh, something I haven't really uh, done as often as I used to back when, you know, like I was, uh, in, in, in school or whatever. Um, so I guess my, my biggest question right now is, uh, Lincoln, are you a Mets or a Yankees fan? (laughs) Oh man. You know, I, if I'm, um, if I'm being like truly honest, I'm not like the biggest baseball super fan, which is kind of, you know, weird given (laughs) the topic of the book. I, when I moved to New York, so I grew up in Virginia, and okay. Virginia is like the largest, most popular, most populated, I should say, state that has no professional sports teams. So I watched sports and stuff growing up, but I didn't grow up in like a, you know, household dedicated to the the Braves or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And when I moved to New York, I was kind of like, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch sports more, and I'm just gonna like. I'm going to root for the Yankees just to uh, piss everyone off because everyone hated the Yankees then. But in practice, I've like only ever been to Mets games. You know, I, all, my, all my friends are Mets fans who are from New York. So I, I would take the Mets. They, they do seem to be like of the two teams. They are definitely like the underdog. So I, it, it makes sense, right? Sort of like as, from like a narrative standpoint. Yeah, well, that's definitely true in like my lifetime. Although my friend, who's the biggest Mets fan, who's who grew up in uh, Long Island, would want me to say that it was not that way when he was a kid, because you know the Mets won those World Series back in the day, like when he was a kid, and it was like the losers who liked the Yankees. But that that's flipped in in the last twenty years or something. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, um, so let me uh, can can I go ahead, or did you want to go ahead and summarize uh, what your book's about? Which we've already sort of gone into that it's. Uh, there's a lot, a, a fair amount of, um, I, I, I think the nerds call it sports ball. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, just a lot of baseball and a lot of talk about baseball. 
And did you want to go ahead and, and sort of give give your shot of the summary? Yeah, sure. So the, the novel is called The Body Scout, and it follows a out-of-date and underemployed cyborg who is a baseball scout named uh, Kobo, who works for a future baseball league that is run by biotech and pharmaceutical companies with the idea that it's basically a loss leader for products, right? You you get your team out there with your new advanced steroids or body modifications, and if the Mets do well, everyone runs to future CVS and buys whatever, you know, body modifications. Um, and kind of more in general... Well, so that's like the kind of background of the book. And then I guess the main character's brother is a is a baseball star who dies at the beginning. And it's kind of a noir murder mystery where he's looking to see who killed his brother. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the yeah. gist. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was sort of struck by like the I, I have to admit, I wasn't really expecting sort of a noir um, structure to this. And as I was like going through, it, I was like this is a noir uh this is like a post cyberpunk <laughs> uh, it's actually like a post cyberpunk now into full on crisper uh you know like uh future uh technology type of thing noir and i was like huh <laughs> well, so yeah. wh- what was your influence for this or, or do you, did this just sort of come from like a boat from the blue well yeah you know you know it, it always like comes from a lot of stuff but definitely like a general idea of it was to write a kind of cyberpunk book you know i i love you know william gibson and and all those kind of authors but the, a cyberpunk book in which like the cyber was replaced with flesh i guess you know a world in which instead of focus being focused on ai and uh, you know kind of what's the thing the facebook metaverse you know online <laughs> game systems and and technology you know that kind of electronics technology it was instead focused on body modification and gene editing yeah crispr kind of stuff and 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 like cybernetics that relate to the body like what is the kind of future that i do think we're heading toward towards at some level in which we can kind of have greater control over our our bodies in that way at least if we have a lot of money it's still a cyberpunk book in the sense that it's you know it's still the corporations ruining everything and like you need to be rich to really survive in this kind of world what <laughs> you mean you mean this is actually based on real life? What are you talking about? Well, you know, I will say I've had like um, you know, I've only had like my early reviews and and like some net galley reviews, you know. The book doesn't come out until September 21st, and I've had really nice reviews and they've all been really nice, but a couple of them have had some kind of like side comment where they'd be like, yeah, well, one thing that's a little expected about the books is that like, there's a lot of rich billionaires and capitalists who are ruining everything. And I'm like, well, sorry, sorry that that sounds cliche, but like (laughs) turn on the news and watch Jeff Bezos fly to space. uh, Lincoln, haven't you heard about this wonderful new thing called hope punk? You should have done that. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of that term. No, no, not at all. I, I mean, we, 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 we sort of. Uh, I mean, if it helps someone get through their day, I'm not going to judge them. But I don't think it's uh, honestly. I don't think Hope Punk is a robust description of a genre. It's it's just sort of very vague. Um, and generally, anything that uh, you, you know, like anything like the Body Scout, would probably not be on the Hope Punk list. And uh, that's that's actually in my book. A good thing. So, I mean, I, I think that the, so I think that that actually touches upon something that um, is some, a, a bit of a hobby horse of mine, which is 
I guess we could talk a little bit about what's the value of having, even if it's a future world, should, uh, what's the value of having it sort of reflect current reality, perhaps from a, an odd angle or from a different perspective? What, I, I don't know if you have any opinions on this, but. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I I hope this doesn't sound like a dodge, but I kind of feel like it's an almost impossible not to, right? Like, even if you're writing some super far future kind of space opera book, it's still reflecting on our culture in some way, even if it's just by providing a different example of things. Right, right. I mean, I, 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 I don't think that's a dodge. I think that that's actually a very sort of practical explanation because yeah we we live in this world we live in the time that we live and uh you know pretty much as i understand it um any fiction that i write is going to be about what's happening to me yeah Yeah, and (laughs) obviously whatever we publish is going to be read right now so it's going to be read through the lens of the now no matter what. yeah yeah exactly so anyway um i guess uh my uh, so why actually let me back up just a second because i i did notice that there's an ongoing thing that was very interesting to me uh because kobo um he <laughs> i did like the pun that he lives in the burrows but it was like the burrows as in uh tunnels under the ground um so the, he he does suffer an accident and he then gets a prosthetic limb as a result which is a cybernetic limb in this in this world but um you do touch uh very um sort of fundamentally a lot of the 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 characters are actually disabled in some way shape or form which is actually rather refreshing to to see that type of representation in a book um so was there any reason that you wanted to touch upon that or did you, was this like a conscious thing or did this develop later on? Oh yeah. It's it's very conscious. I mean, I think the first thing for me is like one thing that I, I dislike in some science fiction is when you have science fiction in which there is some kind of new technology that is introduced and it is adapted by everyone in the exact same way or something, Mm -hmm. right? Which is just not how, technology really works, right? We see in our, our own days, you know, different groups adapt in different ways and they reinterpret and reinvent or they they accept some parts of a technology and change it in other ways. And with this book in which the kind of central theme of it or the philosophical questions have to do with, you know, what the body is and what the ideal human form is and what technology should or shouldn't do to the human body, it definitely felt very natural that the book would have a, a range of characters who have a range of responses to that, right? Like some who totally embrace the modern technology, some who don't. And mm-hmm. given the given the body focus, having characters who have different kinds of disabilities seemed just seemed natural to the themes and questions. Right, right. I, I did also want to um, like mention that one of the interesting things about this is the fact that the the current baseball uh league uh is because it's genetic it used to be cybernetic and that kobo used to be a a baseball player like a big leaguer um and and i felt like that sort of was really rather an interesting backstory Uh, i'm sorry go ahead (laughs) oh no no yeah i mean i think that that plays into the same kind of thing right like i was thinking about ways in which 
Yeah, there, that was one of those things that I had way more backstory of, and I kind of cut it because you know you can't you can't do too much of that that kind of <laughs> world building without people's eyes glazing over. But yeah, it's yeah, I guess it's another example of that kind of theme where it's like, okay, what are the different ways that we'll interact with these technologies, and and what kind of ways will succeed or fail? And you know, maybe on a more practical level, I was also thinking of like what was it called? The XFL league when there was like an NFL spinoff oh, that was like really extreme yes. <laughs> stuff going on. And it just kind of flopped on its face for being just too removed from, from what we look for in sports. So this, the cyber league that is defunct by the time, time the book starts is like an example of that. So I, I guess that, that actually opens up another question. So why did you choose baseball and not say the current great American sport football? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. And I think it, I always thought of it as a baseball thing. I guess the first thing is that I grew up in, I was a teenager in the 90s. And so I was, you know, there during base MLB's big steroid scandals and mm -hmm. reading all of the different arguments about, you know, what what is purity of the game or whether whether all these kind of steroids and stuff are fine because like people down at the gym, right? You and I can go to the gym right now and see people who are like more beefed up than a lot of baseball players. Like maybe it should just be allowed. And then, you know, back in the day they used amphetamines and yada, yada, uh, all those different arguments. So those are something I always thought about and also thought about as connected to baseball specifically. Mm -hmm. I do think that, you know, honestly, if I was going to pick the sport that I enjoy watching the most, it would probably be basketball. But I do enjoy probably playing baseball the most out of these sports. And I don't know, I, I guess on one level, baseball is a certain kind of American sport that feels, you know, very Americana. It's got its own quirky rules, weird outfits. Everything has bizarre names. And then it has all these <laughs> idioms that it is given, you know, American English, right? Uh, rain check and, uh, you know, three strikes and you're out and hit a home run, touch base. You know, there's a million like phrases, ballpark figure that all come from baseball. And then there's also just like a great kind of fictional tradition of baseball, you know, Don DeLillo's Underworld and that iconic The Simpsons episode and Robert Coover's great book. And, oh God, you know, in terms of like robot baseball, when I was a kid, I really loved this game for Nintendo called Base Wars. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, no, no, I did not. No, go ahead. Tell me more. <laughs> it was an old Nintendo game in which you you played robots. And a base, so it was base wars, and you were, you were robot teams, and there were robots that had different kind of, uh, like one of the robots would have a motorcycle wheel and could go really fast, and one of the robots was like a, <laughs> a levitating thing with a cannon for an arm. That was the pitcher, and if you got to a base and someone was like trying to tag you out, you could fight them, and the robots would do battle. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That might have been okay. another influence. No, this is great. <laughs> I, I can see where the 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 cyberly uh, came from. Actually, yeah. <laughs> now <laughs> I probably was remembering that game for sure. Not not that I've played it since I was you know ten or something. But. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's funny how um, you know sort of like one of those uh, one of those crabs that that sort of glues parts of like little bits of seaweed you know i i write myself and sometimes i'll sit there and go like well what were the influences to this and you start digging around and you go wow i don't i haven't thought of that in like 20 years <laughs> yeah and you know i like i want to cobble all that stuff together like i was just talking about you know 
highfalutin literary authors like Don DeLillo, but there's no reason he can't be paired with, you know, weird baseball video games. <laughs> well, I mean, there's also just the the all the the films that, you know, obviously what, what was the the they did like a was it a recent remake of film uh, Field of Dreams? Oh, there uh, was something about that that happened like like last week or something, right? Last week, yeah, I believe so. I I I you know, I I have to profess I've never watched Field of Dreams. Um but you know, obviously, I know of it. Uh, my 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 baseball movie is probably uh, uh, the Natural, the old uh, Robert Redford one. I this is a, a not as probably good as those movies, but I was really <laughs> when I was a kid, and I you know I really want to preface here that I have not seen these movies since I was a kid, so they may be <laughs> extremely problematic and probably were. But those comedy movies, uh, Major League and Major League Two. Oh yeah, I, <laughs> yes. I, I love those as a kid. Yes, yes. I mean, they they were. I mean, at the time, they were funny. You're probably right. They they are probably full of all sorts of. Uh, <laughs> iffy jokes let's put it that way they might not be i just haven't rewatched so i don't want to be you know held yeah to task no, no. For them. i mean yeah it, it's all good um it is what it is but yeah major league i remember those those were great fun when they came out um but yeah uh i, I just i think you're right i think there is um a certain mythologizing of baseball especially in the u.s uh, and especially because uh you know part of the myth is that it was created in the U S it was like a fully uh, like the first and fully American sport. But I will say that, you know, I think that's a hundred percent right. But I will say at the same time that something that also interests me about baseball is the internationalness of it in that it's like popular in Japan and Korea and also, you know, Caribbean countries and Mexico and Puerto Rico. So it also has like an interesting international edge to it. that something like football doesn't. I mean, even Fidel Castro was was uh, going to be wasn't he going to be scouted for like what, what, which team was he going to be scouted for? I forget. Uh, I but know. yeah, yeah, it was going. He's he was uh, he was actually considering coming to play baseball in the U.S. It's a weird. It's a very strange factoid. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, and and I'm from Puerto Rico, so you know we we have our uh, you know the 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 legend Roberto Clemente, uh, but you know many other players that. I haven't followed baseball in a long time, in a long, long time. So I, I don't know when any of the new ones. So sorry, folks. Uh, but yeah, I, so I guess my other question would be, I would, I think my surprise at it being sort of more of a noir narrative is the fact that I, you know, like you, you're talking about like a scout, like a, a sports scout, and then it becomes like this weird almost corporate intrigue noir, right? So what, I I guess, what was your, what drove you to sort of think of it in that sense? Did you, did the noir come first or was it simply that you started out with a sci-fi concept and then wanted to introduce noir to it? You know, they were both there together from like the, the conception before I started. I think I always knew I wanted to do like a Raymond Chandler-esque voice. You know, I think that the the character, my character Kobo is very different from like a Raymond Chandler narrator. He's a bit more of maybe, maybe a bit more of a sad sack loser or something. But um, 
you know, I, I wanted to write in that kind of voice. I love those kind of ridiculous Raymond Chandler metaphors. And certainly one thing I had to do when I was editing the book was cut back some of the extreme metaphors, although there are plenty of them in there. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, th- those were always kind of tied together for me. I, I mean, I guess if I, I think probably also if I'm thinking of influences, a book that I also haven't reread in a long time, but the, a book that I really loved when I was when I was younger is Jonathan Lethem's first novel, Gun with Occasional Music, which is, uh, it, it doesn't really have anything else to do with my book, except that it's definitely like a Raymond Chandler voice in a sci-fi world. So if you haven't read it, I, I highly recommend it. Yeah. I, I you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's funny because you, you mentioned Kobo as more of a sad sack. And I was thinking of, he, he exists on a spectrum between like Sam Spade and, and the dude from the big Lebowski. <laughs> He's a little bit towards the dude side in, in noir narratives. <laughs> I, I mean, the big Lebowski, I love too. I'm sure that that's, that worked its way in there somehow. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I always find it much more interesting when, um, and I think that's sort of, part of the the noir narrative it's that you know generally speaking even even the sharpest uh you know private eye is is always a little bit out of their depth um but there is something really to be uh enjoyed from sort of a hapless and really out of their depth character because it, it really allows you to to ramp up some of the mystery uh behind stuff and I do have to admit that um, the 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 twist and the the actual sort of motivation behind the scenes, which I won't spoil because this is a spoiler free interview, um, did actually it made perfect sense. But it also like took me by surprise. I was like, oh, OK, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. You know, that's one of those things where I well, obviously, that's like what you want. Right. But um, I do have like a certain. What am I trying to say here? I have a kind of like a literary fiction background, just by which I mean I went to an MFA and I kind of come from a world in which people, you know, poo pooed plot a lot, which I never really agreed with. And when I wrote this book, I was like, I'm going to teach myself how to write a plot, you know, with actual twists, because that's like really hard to do. So I'm I'm glad that I I pulled that off, at least for you, that it wasn't super telegraphed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, from uh, at least in my opinion, a mission accomplished. Uh, you know, and and I think that um, a, a friend of the 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 show here, uh, Colin Broadmore, who um, who edits for uh, an online magazine called Blood Knife, uh, had an interesting uh, point that he mentioned that really at the heart, sort of like at the the grandfather of all genres, the mystery narrative. And I think he's he's really on to something about that. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that, but I, I do think that especially for more plot-driven stories, a, a knowledge of sort of like the mystery and how to construct a mystery uh, is really helpful, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think you need something to pull a reader along. And I think that something can be anything, really. I know that that sounds utterly vague. But, you know, I love a lot of books that are completely plotless. I love, you know, Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities or Nicholson Baker's The Mezzanine. And, you know, I love books that don't really have much going on with characters or even some books that I think the language is very clunky. But you have to have, like, something that's really pulling the reader along, mm-hmm. right? That every single page is giving some kind of pleasure or surprise or interest. And... 
a mystery is a great one for that. You know, who yeah. doesn't who doesn't want to solve a mystery? I mean, I mean, uh, to be honest with you, like the uh, the way I see it, um, even constructing like I, I view perhaps plot in a very sort of uh, simple way that it's a series of hooks that sort of drag you through the story. I'm saying drag sort of in a almost derogatory jokey sort of way, but really it, it sort of pulls you along and you, you sort of go through the story going from hook to hook. And part of constructing those hooks is sort of figuring out exactly the balance between withholding and giving information. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that, but that's but sort no. of like a, yeah, I totally agree. And I think you're right. It's like that balance is very tricky to accomplish. There, there's this, uh, do you know the writer George Saunders? I do. Yeah, he has this this essay that's actually about another writer, Donald Barthame, but that I always teach when I teach fiction classes. But he has this utterly ridiculous metaphor, but that says kind of the same thing you're saying, which is he gives this metaphor of a story being like this Hot Wheels set he had as a child. And the <laughs> Hot Wheels set has these little gas stations around the track. And the gas stations would have spinning wheels to keep the car moving forward, right? That's where they they hid the propulsion mechanism. And he's mm -hmm. like, basically, as a story, if you're writing a short story or a novel, you just have to, like, parcel out your gas stations that push the reader through to the next segment until they get to the end. And that's right. That's what has right. to happen. Well, I mean, and, and it's it's I think the trickiness on my end of things is figuring out you know, sort of when you're going to dole out uh, new information. Um, and especially if you're trying to withhold like a, uh, like a twist or some sort of development. Uh, but you, you can, it's in my uh, estimation, it's tricky because you have to sort of figure out how to build up to it without giving it all away <laughs> and then be like, because you have to give them breadcrumbs and that's where the, the sort of like the mystery is the grandfather of all genre idea comes from. You know, you do have to sort of set these breadcrumbs along so that the reader doesn't feel completely blindsided by a twist. They can go back and if they so desire, they can flip back through the pages and go, oh, this, this is where they established this and she says that and he said this other thing and then that points to this and that's why that happened. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a very hard balance, I think. Yeah, because also like the reader, like if we're being, you know, really practical about it, the reader needs a certain amount of hitting on the head to, or you know, a certain handful of breadcrumbs <laughs> thrown in their face, just because you know they can't retain all the information. You know, that's not an, an insult or something. But mm -hmm. I remember watching a writer. Um, who was talking about this kind of thing where he was saying that he had like this phrase that a character says in the first chapter. And then they, then another character says it 300 pages later. And he was like, aha, the reader is going to be like, Oh, they're the same character. And then his editor was like, no, you need to say that phrase like 12 more times. No one's going to remember <laughs> it from 300 pages ago. Exactly. But then if you say I it mean, too many times, then the reader is going to be like, Oh, duh. Right. I mean, it's, it's weird because I think that you had that, um, it was one of your uh, essays where you were talking about why not uh, gravitate towards your, your smartest reader. Mm. And, and I, I, I felt that like in the core of my bones, you know, it's just like, yes, yes, we don't, you know, you don't necessarily need to spoon feed someone, but you do need to sort of give them something. 
And sometimes it's just a small thing, you know, just a, a, a tiny little breadcrumb versus a full meal to get them to the next point. And it, I don't know, it's, it, I could talk about this for hours on end because it's, it's fa- endlessly fascinating to me, you know, where to include an obstacle, you know, how to make an obstacle feel natural and so on and so forth. So, you know. Well, yeah, it's also like there's a kind of, I'm really like being somewhat inarticulate and just talking off the top of my head and I wish I had some like more clever <laughs> metaphor here, but you know, there's like a kind of object to it too right you're creating this aesthetic object and not you know even outside of like how the reader experiences it although that's extremely important you know there's a beauty to the balance of like having the clues there that make sense to the later revelations in the same way that reusing you know phrases can create a kind of beauty in poetry you know you, you take an element and you twist it and change it and that's kind of how I don't know, an aesthetic object is made in the same way that a sculpture might have elements repeated. Maybe that's about it. Maybe it's more like a musical aria, you know, repeats throughout the rest of the song. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there is, I think, I think music is a, is a very good metaphor for that because you can have like, for instance, a late motif, which is your, 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 your example of, aha, they said the phrase, uh, you know, but you need to say that you have to sort of, repeat that because we want to sort of glean that pattern you know yeah it's like Uh, there's something where like everything you want everything in fiction maybe or in art to be some combination of like inevitable and surprising (laughs) so it's it's a weird balance but you want it to like feel inevitable and fit what has come before but also be fresh and, and interesting right right i mean it's it's it sounds like a paradox right uh But uh, but then also like the I think that the the ineffable quality, especially in writing, uh, is really like okay, you could you could do that and still have something that's sort of devoid of soul, uh, for want of a better word. And honestly, sometimes uh, I, I I always think about um, this Kelly Link uh, piece of advice where she she talks about. Um, you know, make sure that you have a list of your obsessions or think about what you're obsessed about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that those obsessions, I mean, obviously those obsessions are really just a tool to get you to inject something of yourself uh, into the story. Even if it's just the weird, your weird penchant for counting, you know, in only, only eating jelly beans in <laughs> pairs of two. You know, I don't know, whatever it is, but you know, you got to put a little bit of yourself into it. And that's, I, I think that that for any aspiring writer that might be listening, uh, is the risk, uh, the risk that you're always going to be putting parts of yourself out there. And that's why <laughs> rejections hurt. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, Kelly, <laughs> Kelly Link is a genius. So <laughs> I always try to follow her advice when I can. Yeah, I mean, I I can't say that that was a wrong piece of advice, you know, because I, I once I started thinking, I was like, oh yeah, I like sort of like not necessarily ghost stories, but like haunted people, you know, people that are haunted by something, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a ghost, but something, you know, that type of thing. I had a professor, uh, Sam Lipsight, who was who was explaining the, like a similar concept, where he was saying that his professor, who was Gordon Lish, had 
always told people to told the students to write what scares you. And the way Sam Lipset explained it to me is he was like, that doesn't mean like, you know, write stuff that'll shock people necessarily, right? But mm -hmm. the, write what your obsessions are, what your eye fixates on, the stuff that you're scared to let other people see that you're that you obsess over and that you're you're concerned with. But that'll be like the most vital stuff. Right. Well, I mean, obviously that also requires a little bit of self-awareness <laughs> and, um, you know, sometimes I'm not, I'm not trying to, to judge anybody, but sometimes people aren't really that self-aware or they shy away from that type of turning the eye inward and seeing, you know, exactly what, what they need to really do. Uh, and I don't know, I, I, I don't, I don't really have any particular, you know, sort of like judgy, uh, comments on that. It's just, you come to it when you can and, and the, at your own pace. Um, I'm sorry, you're going to say something? No, no. I mean, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, like fiction needs a little bit of like blood and guts in there, like a little bit of, of your, your, your heart or your fear or your obsessions, or it does feel kind of dead on the page. And there's no way to really like prove that, but it still feels true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that's, I think that that's the, honestly, that's the, um, it, it's really the challenge and the paradox of it because it's, you know what it is? I, I, I'll tell you this. It's the paradox of voice. So, uh, I, I don't know if you've ever had this, but, uh, I've had people like I'm writing just the way I know how to write. And somebody was like, oh, what an interesting voice. And I'm like, what? This is the same way I write every... And somehow something in the mix has caused a, a complicated pattern to appear for that reader that they think that this is a different voice. And I, I have, honestly, I have no clue sometimes what, what they're seeing because I was like, it's just me. I'm, I'm, it's just me. I, I can't really tell you anything different. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's another one of those things that's like ineffable, but like matters so much. I was, I was on this um, panel like just a couple of days ago for this Kurt Vonnegut anniversary. It was a bunch of different kind of sci-fi writers, but I had, I was reminded there of this Kurt Vonnegut writing advice that if you just go online and Google, like, uh, how to write with style, I think is the article called. But, you know, one of his big pieces of advice is that you should just like lean into your voice wherever you're from, like how you talk. And he says something about how he grew up in Indianapolis, where people talk like a bandsaw cutting through galvanized tin, I think is his phrase. And, you know, there everyone is totally, this is him. So don't come at me if you're from Indianapolis. But, you know, they speak in this garbled way and like they have they're really an artful, but you can create an art from that, right? And we all have our own weird quirks of whatever ways we learn to talk and write. And it's kind of good to lean into that, to be like as unique as you can be on the page, but it also is like true to yourself and your voice. Yeah. Well, while, while also not completely alienating yeah. a potential reader. Um, but, you know, honestly, that, that's what editors can end up being for, you know. <laughs> Don't self-edit uh, until you're you're done or whatever. But um, so if we can circle back, because honestly, this has been fascinating, but can we circle back real quick to um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier regarding, uh, you know, how different technologies uh, get adopted 
in different sort of stratas of society and different culture or different communities, I should say. Um, it was something that uh, it struck me because it's something that uh, is really at the heart of, uh, of like Gibson's entire sort of idea of what cyberpunk was, you know? Um, so it was interesting to see how uh, sort of you could call it hypocritical, uh, but I didn't really see it that way uh, because you have that faction that is like the new Edenists that uh, reject all the, every type of different thing, mm -hmm. but, uh, but they definitely use some of the tactics when they're, you know, when they are pressed to fight against the system. Uh, did you want to talk a little bit about the new Edenists a little? Yeah, sure. Um, well, yeah, I definitely, you know, was interested in ex exploring different kind of, you know, as I said before, I was interested in seeing how different people individually respond and like the different ways people would feel about how the body should or shouldn't be in this kind of in that kind of future. But I also wanted to look at it on the level of like ideology and and politics. And yeah, I don't you know, the the Edenists are kind of you know, they evolved and changed over over the course of it for me. I think they started as more of a kind of religious group, and I am not a religious person and and grew up in rural Virginia where I was like an atheist and people <laughs> evangelical kids on the bus told me I was gonna burn in hell and stuff. So <laughs> but they kind of evolved into more of a kind of I don't know, anarchist animal liberation front tinge group in which they have tactics that seem counterproductive, but you can, or I, I can like agree with some of their kind of core message, if that makes sense. Right. No, no. I mean, I, I, I see what you're talking about because uh, yeah, I think it, it sort of, uh, bec the reason they sort of stood out to me is because it felt like even within the group, there was a little bit of factionalism oh, and, yeah, yeah. and to, yeah. And to be fair, like, the thing that really, really stood out to me is the fact that they um, they are sort of a, a an oppressed minority in this world, uh, and they feel that way, but they didn't feel like, you know, sort of sad sack, I should feel sorry for them either. <laughs> and that's a great balance, honestly. Yeah, you know, you, we, we were talking about cyberpunk and and hope punk and stuff but when i was a kid i really grew up in the in like the punk scene and that really meant a lot to me in terms of you know where i formed some of my aesthetics and some of my politics but the the punk scene at least when i was you know there there was a lot of overlap with very left-wing politics and a lot of factionalism and fighting and you know groups and politics that I agreed with would devolve into fights over tactics and that was certainly something I was I was thinking about. I mean not that it's unique at all to the <laughs> punk world, right? Like I you know my parents generation with the kind of 60s protest you have like the SDS and then they they split off or the Weather Underground splits off and becomes a more a more kind of extreme faction. And I'm very interested in like leftist history in general, and it's always full of that, right? Groups get <laughs> you know fight over tactics and fight over ideology, and you know we see that today too. So that was something I was certainly just kind of drawing on from my own history. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's interesting because it, 
to your point, I think that a lot of that factionalism is about like purity of tactics and, Mm -hmm. you know, a big surprise. Uh, (laughs) Like, like we have, we don't see that on Twitter every day, but, but honestly, like I felt like at least the, the specific faction that we get to see in the book actually felt like a, a threat and something that could actually take, you know, sort of assume power if given the chance. Uh, and, and granted they're trying to carve out their chance uh, in any way, shape or form they can, but you know, also it's, this is a world where to, you know, it seemed to me that basically all the, the gigantic corporations have already won. So, you know, they are, they have the slimmest of chances to ever really do it much of anything. Yeah. Well, that that also rings true. Maybe to my, my own life experience. Sadly. (laughs) Sorry to bring everyone down. Sorry, folks. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, that's also like, you know, there is some measure of, you know, you, you fight the good fight because it's the good fight, not because necessarily you're going to win, uh, you know, every time you fight it because, I mean, Jesus Christ, hold on. This is, uh, this is actually, this is sounding like the Hope Punk uh, manifesto. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you fight the good fight because you want to achieve power and sometimes you, you lose, you know, that's the... F- the, the long and short of it, I feel. Yeah, it is. And then, you know, also, obviously, you know, this is at its core, a kind of noir narrative about a character and like, a, you know, his uh, adopted brother in the book. And, you know, it didn't make, I wasn't trying to make a political manifesto where you read the book and you're like, ah, oh, yes, tomorrow we go out and, <laughs> and <laughs> raise the black flag. So the poly, you know, politics infused the book, but it's not the ideology and politics are not maybe the central concern. Right. I mean, uh, uh, you know, at the end, it, it, it does feel very much like the type of ending I expect, you know, from even the noir narrative and even from a, a, a standpoint of someone who sort of stands up to the system uh, in some way, shape or form uh, and, you know, uh, sort of comes away a little bit disgusted by exactly what, what the system is. Yeah, I think that sounds right. I mean, my character, Kobo, is like. He's got a kind of, um, again, maybe like a punk rock, fuck you kind of attitude towards, you know, fuck the system kind of attitude. But he's not a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Maybe he should well, be. I mean, but <laughs> Yeah, I, one of the uh, obviously one of the stories that always comes to mind uh, when we're talking about this is, you know, those the, the ones who walk away from Omelas. And yeah, it sounds like Kobo walked away from Omelas. <laughs> it's like. I mean, he doesn't have any answers uh, as to how to change, <laughs> change Omala. So he just goes and starts his own thing. Right. He's not like there's that uh, that sequel story that N.K. Jemison wrote called The Ones Who Stay. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was trying not to think about that one. <laughs> right. Yeah, but he's not in that story where it's like the ones who stay and fight. He's, he's in the ones who walk away, maybe. He's not going to stay in the system, but... Yeah, he doesn't have the vision or the resources or the or the whatever to to change it all. Yeah, I mean, uh, as an aside, I f- I find it really funny the the need or the desire to try to answer that question that Omalas asks. Uh, and I don't know, I I I don't want to say that it's wrong, but it seems like it sort of misses the point. <laughs> Well, yeah, I definitely read 
Omalas is more of a like philosophical parable than yeah than something that can be solved. Like, what is the amount of suffering that that allows for for goodness, and what what do you do in the face of that? Right. That's right. always going to be the case. Right. I mean, I think that the the issue is that it presents it simply sort of uh, sort of points at the at the trolley tracks and points at the trolley. And describes the trolley very beautifully, uh, and and mentions that it's trundling o- along the the tracks, but really it's not trying to tell you oh, which answer should you give. It's saying, well, you know, this is the problem. Um, uh, which one? Are, you know, like uh, you. And in fact, uh, we we've done we've done an episode on Omalas earlier, and it, it's so funny because there is right before the the final plunge, she offers that little. Uh, you know, do you believe you don't have like basically she's inviting you to you can step away from the story right now that you can leave it unfinished. Uh, it's so funny to me that uh, th- there are have been so many different sort of riffs on it. Uh, but back to your story. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, I suppose that the other thing that brought that I thought of, especially with um, the <laughs> the really funny uh, name JJ Zuns, it it just brought to mind uh, Catch Twenty Two uh, with uh, you know Major Major, mm. sort of like a funny name. Did you have any? Were you just sort of like riffing on different uh, things for the the character names, or? Yeah, you know. Uh... That's a good question. Um, a lot of the characters, this, like, you know, I feel like as I'm about to say, this is going to sound really pretentious or something, but I think a lot of the names I took from just, uh, I don't know, some of them are like authors or from stories that I like. So hmm. uh, Zuns is the name of, there's a Borges story, Emma Zuns. And hmm. the, I honestly haven't even reread that story in like a long time, but for some reason that last name always stuck with me. So I took that in terms of the double first name, right? Cause his name is Julio Julio. I, I think I honestly, if, if we're just talking about like super random influences uh, or as we were talking about before, there's a, a book I like by a writer. I love um, Valeria Luiselli, who is a Mexican American writer. And she has a book called the story of my teeth. And her main character has a double name. And now that I'm saying it, I can't remember what it is. It's not Julio Julio. It's something else. But I think I was like, oh, yeah, I'll do a double name like that for, for his first name. <laughs> nice. For his first and middle, I guess. I mean, yeah, it, 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 it's, it sort of captures um, – I feel like it really sort of captures the um, – sort of a part of the absurdity of this world. Uh, but also, you know, it sounds like an, a perfectly, you know, sort of cromulent name that, uh, that a, uh, Dominican American, uh, you know, sort of, uh, parents would have given their child, you know? Yeah. I mean, another thing I do for names is I sometimes just go scroll through like the, uh, the tennis, like the W, um, what am I talking about? The ATP and the WTA like tennis rankings, just because that's like a very international list. And you just kind of get a bunch of different, just kind of look at different names from different cultures. And I don't know. I think it's fun to just, I dig around in names a lot and just kind of gather them, I guess, but there wasn't any kind of specific organization to them or, or anything. <laughs> yeah. It, it's all good. 
Um, so yeah, uh, I guess this might be a good place to, I mean, did you have any other, uh, commentary that you wanted to give or any last thoughts? Um, no, I mean, I, I very much appreciate you having me on and I'm, I, I, it's, you know, this is exciting for me because this is like, I'm, the book comes out in three weeks uh, or sorry, four weeks, actually. It's about a month away. Um, so this is like an early time for me to talk about it. So I feel like I haven't honed my pitches and stuff yet, but I think, uh, <laughs> I think we covered most of the book. I think the one thing that maybe we didn't talk about if I'm, if I'm pitching the book to your listeners is I hope at least that it's a pretty funny book. You know, it's a kind of fun, wild satire to a degree, in addition to being a kind of noir <laughs> cyberpunk book yeah yeah i mean I, I i do have to say and and this is me maybe talking to the to the uh listeners as well is that you know it, it does come across as f- sort of funny and absurd like darkly funny in uh i i do have to agree that uh if if you're trying for a borges style dry dark humor it's in there uh i mean uh just a guy that is called the mouth who is, was he, was he modeled after anyone or just simply that was the way he came out uh, from, you know, you writing it out. Oh man. You know, honestly, he, when I started the book, I started the book in like maybe 2015 or 16. And I mean, I had the idea for a bit, but when Trump first ran, I was like, Oh, Trump's language is so ridiculous. He'd be a fun kind of, (laughs) like language to steal for a character. But then obviously it's not so funny when he was actually president and did everything he did. So in revisions, I had to strip out a lot of that, but there's a bit of a kind of Trumpian language. And then also a bit of Elon Musk and, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos and a lot of those kind of tech (laughs) barons of the day. It's funny because I was, I was uh, sort of swinging between this is maybe based on Trump or it's maybe based on uh, Steinbrenner from Seinfeld specifically. Oh, yeah. There's maybe a little bit of that too. I do like <laughs> I mean, the Larry I, David Steinbrenner impression. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I just found it really funny uh, in, I mean, a darkly, you know, humorous way that, you know, he, he's just sort of negligently, it has that, like this negligent malice to him. <laughs> yeah, that's a good term for it. Yeah, just yeah, it's just I don't have time for this, and yeah, you know, he, he'll he'll assign someone else. Someone else will actually because he's not really interested in you anymore. Will probably put on a hit on you. Uh, you know, just to stay in his good graces. Uh, he's definitely trumping in that way. Like he's just there to promote himself and and brag and stuff and, and isn't, yeah, yeah. isn't the true great mastermind or anything. Yeah. I, I, I did, I did enjoy that. And then also like everything is shaped like a mouth, like a <laughs> golden mouth door handles. And you're like, wait, hold on. That doesn't look like a mouth. That looks like something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was also kind of getting back to like, spinning everything off of the central kind of conceit of a cyberpunk book that's all about the body. So I was like, well, I should even make, you know, the sculptures be made out of like flesh. It's like futuristic flesh sculptures and yeah, weird mouth decorations and stuff like that. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Uh, but yeah, you're, you, I think you nailed it. Honestly, part of, well, I mean, so it's, 
yeah, it's I don't think it's it's laugh out loud. Personally, I didn't find it laugh out loud funny, but there is like that that sort of humor. And I think it's sort of emphasized by the fact that Kobo is just sort of bouncing like a pinball from, you know, one thing to another in the story. And he just doesn't really he he barely has time to register certain things before other things start happening. So it's always always a pleasure to read that type of uh, uh, <laughs> that type of main character is always a pleasure to read because the, you feel for him, but you also sort of think to yourself, "Hey, you are a dummy, aren't you?" <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you gotta have. I love, I love a, a character like that. I mean, it's like you were talking about, or you brought up the Big Lebowski before. Like, so much of the appeal of that movie is that is that main character who's just kind of a bit hapless and a bit dumb, but also, you know, kind of right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's the thing. The, the Big Lebowski, the dude has uh, the soul that the the rest of the characters don't have. And so, therefore, he is, you know, sort of, he strikes true and actually succeeds. Not because he actually tried anything, but because he's right, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I was definitely going for that. And, yeah, I agree. It's not like it's definitely not Douglas Adams, you know, pure comedy. But I, I hope it's uh, like a kind of fun, dark humor runs through it. Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess uh, this is the time that I will ask you to uh, tell us all about uh, where can people uh, where would you prefer that people get the Body Scout? Oh, well, you know, I mean, I, I have no preference other than, I guess, your your local indie bookstore is always appreciated, but uh, it comes out September 21st, so in exactly a month from when we're recording this. I don't know when it'll go up, but um, yeah. It, if, yeah, if anything kind of cyberpunk noir with a bit of corporate satire sounds good to you, uh, I hope you check it out. Yeah. Uh, And this is where I will jump in and uh, say something that I'm sure that you know, uh, which is, folks, uh, if you're listening to this, pre-orders make for next books happening. So please go out, check it out um, um, and and pre-order the book. It's it is actually rather, rather hilarious. And it's a great read. I, I can vouch for it myself. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, not a problem. Pre-order, pre-orders um, do matter a lot. Yes, they do. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've had our share of uh, like first book authors on here, so you know that's something that's uh, been sort of drilled into me as well. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, if if you like what you hear here, uh, go out, check it out, pre-order it at your indie bookstore or the uh, e vendor of your choice. Uh, if it needs to be Amazon, I guess. <laughs> but yeah anyway um thanks for coming on lincoln it's been a blast great well thanks so much for having me yeah thanks take care oh and uh, actually you know what uh let's say goodbye to our listeners and thanks for listening in folks catch you next time on Podside. Right. bye everyone